This is Sharon Lovett of the Tyndale Momentum Book Team at Tyndale House Publishers. I'm talking today with Jason Mitchell about his book, No Easy Jesus, How the Toughest Choices Lead to the Greatest Life. Jason is the teaching pastor at Lives Changed by Christ Church in Harleysville, Pennsylvania. No Easy Jesus is Jason's first book. Welcome, Jason, and thanks so much for giving us time today to discuss this important book for the church. Well, absolutely, Sharon. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's my honor. Yeah. Well, you know, as I read your book, I really thought the title, No Easy Jesus, will intrigue people because I, I know it did for me. So I just want to get a little bit of uh, background. Um, you know, I in reading your book I realized that you've been in ministry all your professional life and before that you grew up as a pastor's kid I'd imagine there are a lot of topics with that breadth of um, history in the church that you could have chosen to write for your first book you know there could have been a lot of things you could have written about and yet you wrote No Easy Jesus and I'm wondering why you wrote that and what do you really mean by no easy Jesus? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, you mentioned that I grew up in a pastor's home. I grew up in a Christian home. And there are so many great things that come along with that. And there are some challenges that come along with that, too. And the challenges for me, I was a, a pastor's kid, as you mentioned. And um, what happened for me, and I found this experience to be true for a lot of people who grow up with, Christian faith sort of in the background um, of their lives, whether they grew up in a Christian home or a pastor's home, it doesn't matter, but if it's just sort of assumed that um, that's the atmosphere and the, sort of the, the water that they swim in is, is Christianity, there usually comes a point in life where you have to figure out why do you believe this, do you even believe it, and what does it mean to you? And so for me, when I was 19 years old, so in some ways this book's born in a very personal experience. When I was 19, I was at the University of Louisville at the time, and um, I just came to this place where I realized that I had just sort of accidentally believed in Jesus. Mm. Um, I just sort of drifted into it. And, and, you know, in the same way that you're kind of in a pool and you're on a raft mm. and you can shut your eyes and then you wake up like 10 minutes later and you're on the other side of the pool and you don't even know how you ended up there. Yeah. That's kind of, I, I realized that I was believing in Jesus that same way where I never really chose for myself. I just sort of drifted into it. Mm. And I also knew that it wasn't, fulfilling, that there was nothing about it that felt like the rich, deep, satisfying, soul-filled life that Jesus promises us. Um, and so for me, it came, there came this moment, this decision point where I, where I just go, I don't want to, I don't want to just accidentally believe in Jesus, um, because the call of Jesus on our lives is to follow him. And I kind of came to this point where I realized that you might accidentally, you might drift into believing Jesus, but you will never accidentally follow Jesus. Because that takes intention, that takes will, that takes um, deliberation on our part. And, and yet, that is the only path. That choice to follow um, is the only path towards that fullness of life that, that Jesus promises. So, one, so some of the books just born out of that. It was just my own experience. And then, as a pastor, you mentioned that my whole you know, career has been um, uh, in, in the church. And so I've had countless uh, conversations with people who've had some of that same experience. Actually, 
Um, one of the interactions I have, I, I talk about this in the book because it was sort of formative and um, in the message of the book was uh, several years ago I was meeting with this couple and they had been married for I think about 20 years and their marriage was, it was, it was pretty much done and they wanted to meet to talk about why and um, the husband had gone out and had an affair the wife um, of this couple, you know, that, that I was sitting down with, she had just found out about this, and partly why, part of the reason she found out about it is because the woman that this man had gone, her husband had gone and had an affair with, was pregnant now, but the woman that he had an affair with wasn't sure if it was his baby or another person. I mean, it was just, it was seriously messed up, the situation. And after they get done telling me about how wrecked their life had become, the, the woman said something really fascinating to me. Um, heartbreaking in a sense, but I think really indicative of where so many of us are and find ourselves sometimes. She said, Jason, we prayed and we prayed and we prayed for years mm-hmm. for God to turn our marriage around, for God to heal our marriage, for God to transform our marriage. Mm-hmm. And we waited on that to happen, and it never happened. And I remember, like it was yesterday, I remember as soon as she got done saying that statement, thinking to myself, that's the problem. You waited on it. Mm-hmm. You just prayed. Like, like, you did the right thing. You were praying for God to transform it, but then you just waited on God to do something. And I sat there and I thought, man, what would have happened if after praying that heartfelt, genuine prayer for God to transform their marriage, something that they were dependent on God for, what would have happened then after you prayed that prayer, then you went and you did the most loving thing you could possibly do to think to do for your spouse, and you did it again the next day and then the next day and the next day, and you string enough years of that together, and maybe you've got something now. And I think it's it's a metaphor for... There are times where we wait for the life that Jesus promises, that soul-filled, rich life. We just wait for it to be handed to us, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't work that way. When Paul talks to Timothy at one point, he talks about to run after the life that you've been given, the prize that you've been, to to grab hold of the life, the eternal life that that has been given to you. These are very active words. Like, it's a gift, but we've got to open it. We've got to go after it with all that we have. Um, so that was kind of the burden of the book to me, is to, to inspire people to stop waiting on the life that Jesus is calling you into and start running after and grab hold of it. Um, yeah. So that's kind of behind it. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I do have a question that I just thought of as you were talking about your own experience when you were 19 and, you know, you had that moment of decision. You know, am I just doing this because... Or do I really believe this and figuring it out? And I totally agree. Everybody has to come to that in order to have a a vibrant relationship. But one thing that um, you said intrigues me because I'm wondering how this would play out when people actually do start changing. And, And you said, you know, you said, I just knew that what I was doing wasn't it. It wasn't like the the abundant life or it wasn't anything compelling to me. Well, how did you know there was something more? How did you know it wasn't just, well, this is just what it is? How did you know? Well, uh, a couple of things. One is I knew the scriptures. And so when you read the stories of the scriptures and you see men and women taking in the scriptural story, Mm -hmm. uh, taking bold, risk-taking acts of faith in the name of God to follow after the life that God's called them into, I knew that I didn't have some of that. I mean, so that was one. You see the stories of Moses, you see the Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith passing, yeah. and they're going, man, they, they've tasted something mm-hmm. that, I, that I want. So that was one. But then in a very real sort of practical, tangible way, I also 
new men and women um, who I could see in the church uh, who were their marriages were thriving, and when I would look at them, I would look and I would say, "Man, the relationship they have with their kids is something I want, you know, one day to have in my family." And I would see that they were marked by generosity and love and peace. And I would watch how some of them facing incredible, uh, incredibly painful seasons in their life of facing a diagnosis or, or abuse or whatever, and I would see the peace in their life. So I also got to see it in flesh and blood, yeah. not just these stories. And, and so that compelled me. And I sat there and go, my life doesn't look like their life. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I wanted to. I was yeah. compelled by that. Um, yeah. I, I wanted that. So, yeah. Yeah. That's what I was wondering because, um, you know, what we do and how we live spiritually isn't just for our own benefit. I mean, people are watching. And, you know, you Absolutely. had people there in front of you that you knew, boy, they've got something I want. So yeah. that would be reason to change. Well, this thing that you observed in your own congregation over the years, and I do remember reading that story about that couple, and it was it was sad. It was like, what about our actions? <laughs> you know, it just yep, is, yep, yep. you know, and how sad it is that they actually thought that. I mean, it sounds as if they really did think that that was it, that they that nothing else was required, and. So this thing that you saw, the boredom with the Christian life, or just feeling like you're in this receptive mode, that no action on your part is uh, required, do you think that that's uh, reflective of what's happening in churches, you know, all over the place? Absolutely. And I think that, I think that this uh, goes beyond, I think this affects men and women. I think it affects teenagers all the way up to our grandparents. I mean, I've seen this played out across the board where when we settle for just believing in Jesus, and when I say that, I mean just the cognitive affirmation, yeah. right, that we just kind of, I just, I believe in Jesus kind of like I believe um, in the power of love, or mm-hmm. I believe in myself, or you know what I mean? Like it doesn't have yeah. a bearing on the way we actually live life. There tend to be, I, I've noticed that there tends to be threads of discouragement um, in Christians that kind of set in, there, be, there tend to be threads of frustration that set in, and there tends to be a thread of boredom that sets mm-hmm. in. And this, again, I've seen this in, and it doesn't matter the age, doesn't matter gender, doesn't matter where, I've seen it all across the board. I think the discouragement comes from, it's like when we buy into this idea that the, that life, a uh, life of risk-taking faith, a life of abundance, a life of, of, of the fullness of life that Jesus promised, that that's for someone else. It's for the mm-hmm. spiritual elite. It's for the pastors. It's for the people who haven't made a wreck of their life. And we believe that, and we grow discouraged, because we think, well, that's for them. They haven't done what I've done. They haven't whatever. And so we kind of shrink back a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, that's discouragement. I think sometimes it's frustration. And the frustration is we just buy into the idea that that's just the way it is. Like the way our life is right now, that's just the way it's going to be. Even though we are compelled by uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, right? right? Those, those, those fruits of the Spirit, they compel us. We want that. We grow frustrated because we don't see it immediately. Mm-hmm. And so we, we just uh, kind of capitulate to the idea that that's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. And we settle in um, to a rut and that that frustrates us. And then some of us, where I've seen it just play out, is just in boredom. Mm-hmm. And that's that's actually probably the most pervasive one, where mm-hmm. Jesus just becomes elevator music. It's just like the music that's playing in the background mm-hmm. while we're on the ride of our life, right? And we're just doing our thing, mm-hmm. and we kind of and we don't ever consider that perhaps Jesus um, 
wants to infiltrate every aspect, wants to transform every part of our life, including our relationships, the way that we work, um, the way that we uh, think, the way that we uh, parent, the way that we interact, like all things, Mm -hmm. that Jesus wants to transform all those. And what happens is when we grow bored, we relegate spirituality, we relegate Jesus stuff to an hour on Sunday, we check off our duty, we do the box stuff, and then we live the rest of our life. And I'm telling you, that's not adventurous, and that's not Jesus, and and it's no wonder it leads to boredom, because it was never intended to be that way. Um, So, yeah. Well, and the other thing I'm thinking, you know, even though everything that you've said is true, and even though somebody might really be identifying with that, you know, oh, I am really bored, I'm wondering about resistance, you know, um, because we Western Christians, well, we're used to being comfortable in our lives, and I think that desire for comfort often extends to our faith experience as well, and some people would say when they hear this, well, what's wrong with being comfortable? We're blessed. We're blessed to have life like this, and I like it. So what do you say to that? Well, here's what I would say. I think I would say that comfort is never the litmus test for a deep relationship with God. Comfort is great, but that's not not the litmus test for whether or not we are tracking with God or not. Mm -hmm. In fact, what does it say in the Scriptures when it says that one day Jesus, you know, our hope and our longing is Jesus would say to us, well done, my good and what? My good and faithful yeah. servant, not my good and comfortable one. So in other words, faithfulness is the litmus test yeah. uh, of a deep, rich relationship with God. And sometimes, and the reason I mention that is because sometimes faithfulness to God actually rubs up against our comfort, and it may confront our comfort, so to speak. Yeah. If you, I mean, just, just think about the Sermon on the Mount for a second. You think about the things that Jesus unpacks and explores and says, you want to follow me? It's not going to be the easiest route, but it will lead you to life. Let me tell you what it's going to mean. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he unpacks things like loving our enemies. He talks about things like forgiveness. He talks about things like letting go of our anger. He talks about generosity. He talks about letting go of worry. I mean, all of these. So think about forgiving our enemies and loving our enemies. Is it, yeah. If you want to talk about comfort, that's about the most uncomfortable thing you can do. Um, he talks about generosity and not letting our treasures um, rule over us, right? Because that's where moth and rust destroys it. I mean, he talks about well, you talk about generosity. That's that's not comfortable to mm-hmm. talk to, to to live generously like that. Goes against the grain a little bit, mm-hmm. and yet the promise is that Jesus is saying, "But yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's not necessarily most comfortable, but it is the only path to life." And there may be a kind of life that you can discover on the other side that could not be discovered any other way. So what do you want most? Do you want comfort, or do you want to be known for your faithfulness? Because faithfulness in the end, that's the limits test. Yeah. And we can go and we can live faithfully, although it may not mean our comfort all the time. So I agree. It is a tension point. Yeah. Um, but I just want to inspire people to choose faithfulness over feelings um, yeah. all so, the time. So, Jason, what if... Um, let me give an example. So I really agree with with your premise. I agree with it personally, I actually do because I've just I know it from my own experience. But I have a friend who seems like they're pretty satisfied with the way their life is. How do I is this book a good book? Will this book make somebody start thinking and realizing, oh, I don't have this. So could I give this book to somebody who's not like 
who's not already in that state of feeling bored or frustrated, but it might actually get them thinking so and get them a little bit thirsty for more. I absolutely think it will because um, I, I actually think that that's so, so Jesus a lot of times was talking to two different crowds, and one, you know, he talked to, he, was, he hung out with uh, Matthew and the tax collectors, and other, as it says in the book of Matthew, disreputable sinners, right? So that was one. But he also hung out with people who were religious, who had, quote-unquote, relationship with God, who if you were to have asked them, um, are you comfortable, are you feeling bored, discouraged, disillusioned, all that kind of stuff, they probably would have said no, and yet Jesus blows that world up for them a little bit and says, yeah, but you, you may not be feeling those things, but have you really discovered the, um, the, truly what God is calling you into? And so for me, what I've been finding is people have begun to re- read this book. Some of the feedback I'm getting from people is saying that this is blowing up my world a little bit hmm. to, in some ways, challenging me to, to rethink maybe I've settled and didn't know it. Hmm. And... Um, maybe I've settled into a little bit of just wanting the easy Jesus when it comes to issues like forgiveness, compassion, generosity, um, mm. uh, the way that I love others, all that. And so, yeah, I, here, so what I would say is I think it's incredibly applicable to, to people who don't necessarily feel that felt need of I've grown bored and all that, because what it does, how can we ever, I, I, I would say it's never not applicable to push deeper into the life that Jesus might be calling us into. And that's what this book is all about, is just saying, let's lean really deep yeah. into the fullness of life that Jesus might be calling us into, even if it confronts us in some ways yeah. that may not be real comfortable. If the promise of life is on the other side, let's go after it. So yeah. I, I absolutely think it's applicable to that yeah. to that crowd. Yeah, I, I do too. Um, and, you know, you've touched a little bit on this, but part of it is, you know, getting honest. And you talk about the need for Christians to acknowledge that life isn't always grand. So why is that so important, and what kind of impact have you seen this sort of denial of reality in the Christian's walk? You know, what what kind of effect does that have on on a church as a whole and the individual? Well, I think it has two effects. One is when, when, when Christians aren't vulnerable and when we're not honest, uh, about some of the ways that life is just incredibly challenging. In, in fact, in some of the ways that following Jesus is very challenging, I think it leaves people who are on the outside, who are not a part of the church, people mm-hmm. who are not Christians, people who are just looking in on it, yeah. I think it leaves us without credibility in their eyes. Mm-hmm. Because people aren't afraid of challenge. They're not afraid. They're not. I, I don't think people at all are afraid of... Uh, I, I think, in fact, you don't even have to believe in the whole Jesus stuff to read the Gospels and know that, whoa, that life that he's calling us into, that's, that swims against the stream a little bit. Yeah. Like, you don't even have to be religious to, 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 to think that. And so if we, if we domesticate that, so to speak, mm-hmm. I think we come across disingenuous to people. So one is on the outside um, of what people, I think we can be up front and say, yeah, yeah, it is challenging, but it's the best kind of challenge. <laughs> like, it's the greatest, like, why would we expect, why would we expect it to be easy? Right. Um, we're talking about forgiving enemies, and we're talking about loving those who hate them. We're like, why would we expect that to be easy? Right. So, so one is for people outside, but I think the other reason why it's so important for us to be honest about some of the challenges of what it means to follow Jesus is because if we don't, we're setting our own selves up for disappointment. To think that, um, like, if we just think that following Jesus is supposed to lead us 
always into this, again, you mentioned the word comfort a minute ago, which I think is a great word, that it's always supposed to be comfortable. We're setting ourselves up for disappointment because the reality, it will not, life doesn't work that way. And then what are, who are we going to blame? Once things fall apart, once it gets challenging, or once whatever, we're going to blame God because we're going to look for someone. And we're going to sit there and go, wait, this isn't what I thought it was supposed to be, but it was never supposed to be that. Right. Jesus, you think about Jesus' faithfulness for a moment. Jesus' faithfulness, in the end, led him to a cross. Mm-hmm. That's not the most comfortable position to be in, mm-hmm. to, to understate it severely. Right. And his faithfulness led him to that point. And for us to, I think, to go, well, we want all the good stuff, we just don't want any of the challenge, I think undermines the sacrifice that Jesus made and also, in a lot of ways, goes against the call of Jesus on our life to go, I want you to follow me no matter where I take you. I promise you in the end it will be good, but it may not be easy, but it will be good. Yeah. It will be good. Yeah. So. That's great. And, you know, you speak about this grit and grace in your book and that they are both essential to the Christian life. Can you speak a little bit to that point? Absolutely. Yeah, I love the word grit. Mm -hmm. Um, Grit is, um, I just feel like you can touch and feel that word. It's grit from a character trait. Um, Angela Duckworth has done a ton of research around this, and, and I love her research because from a character trait, grit is resilience. It's tenacity. It's that willingness. Um, This has nothing to do with talents, you know, ability, uh, smarts, nothing like that. Grit is your willingness to just get up and go after something again, Mm -hmm. right? So um, what's interesting, and and one of the, you know, sort of the central ideas of the book is that Jesus, following Jesus, takes an enormous amount of grit, um, a willingness to say, I'm going to get up again tomorrow, and I'm going to go after this life no matter what. And yet, There's this tension that develops for a Christian because our entire relationship with God is dependent uh, on grace. Mm -hmm. And so you have these two things which they seem like they're opposite sides um, of the spectrum. Grit, sort of our willingness to go after something, and grace, which means we can't do anything. We're completely dependent on grace. But I actually think they work hand in hand. Um, And the reason why I I think they're both essential to the Christian life is because that's where transformation happens. Transformation in our life happens at the intersection of grit and grace. I love um, uh, Colossians 2.6, and in Colossians 2.6 it says that just as, you, uh, just as you first accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, that's grace, right, mm-hmm. where we accept that gift, right? Pure grace. There's nothing you did, right? But then he go, Paul goes on to say, just as you first accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, pure grace, you must continue to follow him. That's grit. That's a willingness to go, God, your grace has saved me. Your grace has rescued me. Your grace has done what I can never do. And because of that, tomorrow I wake up and I, ch- and I will follow you. I will apply all the grit that I can muster to chase after the life that you're calling me into, to do whatever you're, to follow through the narrow doors that you've invited me, that you've invited me into. So when those two things get combined, when we become dependent on grace, and we recognize that there's nothing we can do, not a thing we can do to earn any more of God's love, and there's nothing we can do to lose an ounce of God's love. That's pure, unadulterated grace. Yeah. At that moment, I think when we take Paul's word seriously to the Colossians, and we say, because of that, in light of that, I will now, I wake up again tomorrow, and I will choose you all over again, Jesus, mm-hmm. and I will continue to follow you. 
when that happens, I'm telling you, the stage is set for transfer, uh, transformation at that point. Yeah. And, um, you know, this isn't something I planned on talking about, but how essential, okay, to do something, this is a hard thing. What you've described is a hard thing to do. And yet, if we're really connected to Jesus and we have that knowledge, heart knowledge, that we are so grateful, that does compel us to, to uh, for the grit part, the part that we need to do. But how, how can people do this by themselves? Can they just decide to do it by themselves. How important is it for uh, the Christian to be involved in some type of community? Yeah, uh, it's 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 more than important. It's it's. I was going to say it's essential, and and I think that is the word I want to use. It is essential, and partly because how does the Holy Spirit tend to make His presence known in our life? It tends to be through other people. It tends to be. You know, Jesus takes still today takes on flesh and blood to use a metaphor through other people, right? Like, like how many times have we said, "Oh man, I feel like God spoke to me through what you just said," whatever. Well, yeah. there's a there's reality. God does use His body. Yeah. He got He uses people um, to do that. He uses the scriptures. He uses I mean, like all sorts of different ways. But but He uses people to do that. And and so the idea behind the Holy Spirit here's here's what's so beautiful. The idea behind the Holy Spirit in the scriptures, it's the word parakletos, and it means to come alongside. It basically means to come alongside someone and call out to them, to, to speak to them, in other words. And uh, when my wife ran her first marathon a couple of years ago, um, I remember going, and we, were, uh, we went to go cheer her on, and there were thousands of people lining this road. And every jogger that, drove, that, that um, jogged by, everybody was yelling out, you can do it. You've got this. Keep going, right? That's Paracletos. That's what the Holy Spirit does in our life. He comes alongside and he calls out to us. Keep going. This is where the life is. In John, um, you know, Jesus says that he will remind you of my teachings and he will point you um, into the direction of godliness and righteousness, right? And so, um, so the one is the Holy Spirit. But how does the Holy Spirit tend to do that? He uses community. He speaks to us through community, and so just like those joggers lining the road, man, we all need we all need some people on the side of a road um, who are cheering us on, who are saying, "I know it gets difficult. Yes, I know it's not easy to show compassion. I know it's not easy to live generously. I know, I know, I know. You can do this. You've got this. This is where the life is. Keep going. The finish line's ahead. Keep going. Um, so it's critical. Yeah, you know. Um I'm wondering, is there uh, a guide, a discussion guide, or will there be a discussion guide to, for people who might want to use this as a group in a group setting? Yep. Yeah, actually, I just finalized um, the discussion guide questions um, that are going to be put in the back of the book just, uh, just a couple of weeks ago. So we are developing that, and I'm really, really happy with, with how it came out because I think this book is going to be an incredible book to be read in community with others um, because yeah. I think it's going to raise some questions um, but I also think it's going to be deeply inspiring and people will want to I think process some of this with with others I think it I think that would be an incredible thing to do actually yeah and the accountability thing you know so yep. we don't yep. slip back into uh, yep. you know the easy life which is not yep. really it's like, what's the point of being a Christian? Yep. <laughs> you know? That's right. That's right. Um, you know, once you've tasted it, you just don't, you can't go back. Uh, yep. 
So I I did want you, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about um, forgiveness and you know that was one of the one of your key areas that you talked about in the book about uh, how these two elements are ne- the grit and grace are needed as yep. we follow Jesus. And I wonder if you could just talk about forgiveness and why is it an essential and how have you seen it make a difference in your own life and then also in the life of a church where they really take this take it seriously. Yep. Well. What's interesting about forgiveness is Jesus says, he makes actually a very radical statement about forgiveness at one point, says that if you don't forgive others, your Heavenly Father will not forgive you. Now on the surface, that looks like um, sort of a transactional statement, that that in other words, God's going to withhold forgiveness. But we know from the scriptures and we know know, from the the scriptural witness that God doesn't do it. God can't be bought. So in other words, it's not um, one for one. It's not like, oh, I better forgive so God will forgive me. Jesus is saying something actually much deeper. Jesus is saying that when we stop forgiving people, when we refuse to forgive someone of the debt that they owe us, of the wrong they've committed to us, that we have, in essence, lost the plot of the story. Because our entire relationship with God is based on forgiveness, right? It's, it's, it's the whole catalyst for us having a relationship with God is in a God who has uh, given us limitless forgiveness. And if you think about snorkeling, you know, if you've ever been snorkeling or whatever, um, you know, um, then you know that there's one tube that the air, you know, when you're you're snorkeling, there's one tube that the air comes in, and that same tube is the tube that the air goes out. And so some of us want to, we do not want to forgive other people. And so we put our hand over the top of that tube, and we say, nope, I don't want to breathe forgiveness out to others. But by holding our hand over the top of that tube, we've also cut ourselves off, haven't we, from being able to breathe forgiveness in. So that's what Jesus is saying, is that they flow out of the same tube. It's not that God can be bought with it. He's saying, you will have forgotten the plot of the story. And the plot of the story is that God forgives all people, and so you can as well. And so that is a deeply challenging idea, Hmm. because... Uh, what that means is that everyone is deserving of forgiveness and that God's given us the ability and the power and the desire to be able to, to um, give us everything we need to, to forgive others. The reason why forgiveness is so difficult, though, why it's not easy, is because any time we forgive someone, we absorb the debt that they owe us. Because you think about it, the only reason you need to forgive somebody is because they took something from you. Now, that could be they took your time and wasted it. It could be something simple. You know, they took your, it could be they took your trust. It could be they took your um, parking spot at the mall during Christmas, which nobody <laughs> likes, right? Like, something was taken from you. It could be as deep as they took your innocence, mm-hmm. right? Maybe it was abuse. Um, maybe it was when you were a child, whatever it might be. But something has been taken. And when we forgive, the reason why forgiveness is so difficult to do is because we know that when we forgive someone, what we are doing is we are absorbing the debt that they owe us, because they owe us for what they took. And we are absorbing that debt. We're choosing not to inflict it or make them pay. That doesn't mean justice. That doesn't mean law. I'm not talking about legal stuff there. I'm talking about we give up the right personally mm-hmm. that I will go and take vengeance on this person. Um, that is a painful proposition. Sometimes, you know, it depends on the level of debt that they, that they owe you. Um, the parking spot of the mall, much less severe than your innocence taken, but it's still a debt that you, had to, that you have to um, absorb. 
And that's why it's so challenging. That's why it's a narrow gate. It's a narrow door that Jesus is inviting us into when it comes to to forgiveness. And yet, it really is the only path towards freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, because if we hold on to that debt, uh, that is the fast track to bitterness, resentment, uh, and, and ultimately, to be honest with you, hate. Um, and uh, And what happens is, what I've seen happen at least, is that we end up becoming... A lot of times, the very thing that hurt us in the first place. I have a friend who her father was um, an alcoholic and just was so, so he was so wrong in what he did to to my my friend when she was growing up in her most formative years of her life. And they would beg her dad to stop. And the things he said and the things he did were just just horrible. Mm-hmm. So one day she comes up and she saw me and she was like, "Hey, I, I write my dad. I wrote my dad a, a a bunch of letters telling him how I feel about things." And I said, well, well, that's great. And what did you say to him? And she, she went on to tell me. She's like, well, I told him how much I hate him. Mm-hmm. I told him he'll never walk me down the aisle when I'm married. I told him he will never have access, like when I get married one day and have kids, he will never know my kids. So she goes through this long list, mm-hmm. and it st- strikes both of us at the end of this list that she goes through that uh, she's become the very thing that hurt her. <laughs> She's become better. She's become close. She's become full of hate. And that's, that's the effect. That's why, as, as difficult as it might be to, to even go down the road of forgiveness, we have to if we're serious. Like, that's no way to live, full yeah. of bitterness. Right? That's no way to live. So I know it's challenging to forgive. Yeah. But what's the alternative? To live full of hate? Like, that's not a good way to live. So, yeah, that's, I think that's the forgiveness piece, which I explore a lot in, in uh, one of the chapters. Is, that's, that's what's at the root of that. Yeah, and in that case, you know, where she is a child and, you know, she is justified in having um, resentment and anger towards her father. But when she, you know, reflects on the person that she's becoming because she's withholding the forgiveness, what is the first step for that person to take to to begin the process? Well, okay, so you, you actually raise a really interesting point. Forgiveness is not pretending that it didn't happen. Forgiveness is not just dismissing what they did. That's not forgiveness. Forgive, forgiveness is not um, forgive and forget, like that's possible. Some things you can't forget. I'm sorry. Forgiveness is not saying, pretending that what they did was okay. It's not dismissing it. Because when you think about it, what's interesting is that can you forgive anyone that you haven't first judged to be forgivable. In other words, implicit to the very idea of forgiveness is that you are calling out that what they did is wrong, yeah. or else there's no need to forgive them. Like, there's, you don't need to forgive someone who didn't do something wrong. But if you forgive someone, you are implicitly saying that you have something that needs forgiving. And so I think it's important for Christians to realize that, man, this is not, this is actually very just what mm-hmm. you're doing. Because you're calling out that what the other person did was, in fact, wrong and should not have happened. We're not dismissing it. We're not glossing over it. We're not pretending like it didn't happen. Um, and I think, Sharon, like, in the, bo- the bottom line is where do you start? You start like all things. You just take a first step. And so for some people, that first step might be, um, I can't, I'm not going to kill them, right? <laughs> like, like, you're making progress because you want to, right? You want to hurt them. Um, you want to get back. And like for you, that first step might be, nope, I'm letting that go today. Yeah. And then you choose it again tomorrow. 
and you choose it again tomorrow, and you may get to the point over time, like, like, like all of these ways that Jesus invites us into, they're like muscles. Mm-hmm. And the longer we work these muscles in small ways, we end up, you know, a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, able to lift weights that we, didn't, we couldn't lift when we first started yeah. lifting weights, and that's okay. So you don't have to put 100 pounds on the, on the, on the bar and start lifting the weight right away. You don't, have to, you don't have to be able to run a marathon, just run a mile. Actually, you don't have to be able to run a mile. Would you be willing tomorrow to just run 100 yards? Yeah. And you keep doing that. You, you see what I'm saying? Like, start yes, small. Yes, I do. And maybe for you, it's just sitting there going, you know what, God? I don't feel like it, but I choose. I'm going to forgive them yeah. today, and I'm not going to say that thing about them. And that's yeah. where it starts, and that's fine. Yeah. That's fine. And I think that's such a good point because I think what happens with a lot of people, I had a good – well, I have – the only way I can meet non-Christian friends is to go to the gym because I work in a Christian yep. company. Right, right, and I, right. You know, yeah. it's difficult to try to find places, and yep. so they all know I'm a Christian. And um, now I'm grateful that they'll ask me to pray for things for them. And I've had you know comments like I I just can't. I'm having a real hard time for forgiveness, and you know, a certain situation. I will hear this from different people, and. And I think what um, people think that you are so good at pointing out here is that it isn't like, oh, this presto changeo thing. Okay, done. Nope. I forgave them. It's over. It's nope. not like that. It's a process. Not like that at all. And it's okay. No. And it's probably going to come okay. back and we have to choose again. And we have to choose That's again. Right. And I love exactly. the analogy of exercising that muscle. You know, yep. he gives yep. us a will. And so we need to exercise that. So, yeah. yeah. And you know, the last thing I'll say about that, yeah. Sharon, is that there's a there's an incredible verse in Philippians that says that God has given us the desire and the power yeah. to live a life that pleases Him. And I love that verse mm-hmm. because, as challenging as it may be, to really follow Jesus into these ways of forgiveness and compassion and generosity and loving enemies and all that kind of stuff, He has promised that he will give us all the desire and the power we need to go there. And one without the other would be kind of pointless. You could have all the desire in the world and have no power to actually do it, and you'd be frustrated. Or you could have all the power in the world but have no desire, and you'd be sitting on a couch. He's given us both. He's given us both. And And I think we could rest in that. Yeah, and that goes back to what you were saying about that couple. I mean, let's be... um, just open-minded that they really did have a desire, but they didn't know that they had power. They didn't know, yeah. and that, that is a That's tragedy. Right. Well, okay, I know we, we've talked a little bit longer than we, than we <laughs> intended, but it's been really fun, and I just yeah. have one final question. Okay. How has this, uh, writing this book changed you, Jason? Yeah. Along the way, it's brought me back. It's reminded me. It's it's brought me back into into. It's not brought me back in a relationship with the real Jesus. It's 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 reminded me of who the real Jesus is again. And because I feel like I go in seasons just like probably everybody does, where I grow bored too, and I grow a little bit frustrated because I'm not where I thought I was going to be at this point or whatever. It's just reminded me that. Jesus is with me. Jesus is guiding me. The call to follow him is the same that it has been for 2,000 years. Um, And it has brought me back to that central reality of I want to wake up again 
I want to, just as I, as Paul said, just as I first accepted Christ Jesus as Lord, so continue to follow him. It is inspired, the writing the book has inspired me to wake up again tomorrow and to do just that, to continue to follow him because he's given me all the desire and power I need to yes. do that. So, yeah, yep. that's, that's perfect. That's great. Well, thanks so much. And for listeners, Absolutely. Um, to find out more about Jason and No Easy Jesus, you can visit noeasyjesus.com. The book is available now to order pre-order online, and it will be in stores everywhere by March 7th. 2017. So thanks, Jason. Uh, have Absolutely. a wonderful Thank you afternoon, so much. and we're looking forward to the official launch. Thank you so much, Sharon. Appreciate okay. it. All right. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay.